Okay, good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 5? If you're new with us, we welcome you. Just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And uh, we are currently in chapter 5. And uh, in a series we've entitled, Jesus Declares His Divinity. Now, as we said last time, the discourse that Jesus gives, starting with verse 17 and running through the end of the chapter, was the result of a miracle he did as recorded in verses 1 to 15. You may not realize this, but this follows a pattern established by Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, a pattern that only John uh, brings to our attention. And that is a miracle followed by a discourse leading up to one of the seven I am statements, declarations of divinity, that John chose to build his gospel around. You only see this with John's gospel. And he's the one who keyed in on this and used it as a basis around which to build his gospel. A miracle followed by a teaching or a discourse, followed by or leading up to one of the seven great I am statements found in John's gospel. And Jesus uses this occasion to declare his oneness and equality with the Father, that Jesus Christ is the great I am. Now, guys, this is no inconsequential truth, as we have already talked about. Our eternal destiny hangs in the balance when it comes to understanding just who Jesus is. As he himself said in John 8, 24, you're going to die in your sins, which means go to hell, if you don't believe that I am. You don't believe that I am Almighty Jehovah God, you will die in your sins. You can't believe He is a mighty God like the JWs, but not Almighty Jehovah God. You can't believe He's one of many roads that lead to, to the Father. Uh, you know, He's a great teacher, but not God incarnate. No. Uh, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the great I am, you will die in your sins. Our Christian faith, our Christian faith is built not on principles but on a person, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And guys, this makes Christianity unique among all the other religions of the world. Think about this. You can remove Muhammad from Islam, Buddha from Buddhism, Confucius from Confucianism, and nothing would change because those religions are not built on their leaders, on their teachings, yes, not on them personally. But if you remove Jesus Christ from Christianity, well... Christianity ceases to exist because Christianity is inextricably linked to and built upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. As we said last time, the subject of who Jesus is, is he God or was he just a man, is still being debated by skeptics and liberals alike who often don't bother to seriously consider what Jesus said about himself on this subject. Interesting. And since, as we just said, understanding who Jesus is is not only foundational to Christianity, it is the difference between eternal life in heaven and eternal destruction in hell. Listen to me. We must know and believe unequivocally who Jesus Christ is. In John chapter 5, verses 17 to 30, Jesus makes five claims uh, about his own divinity. Five claims to divinity or that he is equal with God the Father. I'll just give you the main points we'll be looking at over the next few weeks. Uh, first of all, uh, equality with God in his person. 
Number two, equality with God in his work. Number three, equality with God in his power over life and death. Equality with God in his authority to judge. And then finally, equality with God in honor. Now, before we go any further, let me just say that um, some of the messages that we uh, give are very practical, okay? Some are inspirational or devotional. This series is going to be more theological in content. But please understand, before you turn off and go, theology, yeah, it's boring, start looking at your phone or something, okay? Please understand, theology, the study of God, or what we call sound doctrine, is the gateway to true devotion. It's the gateway to true devotion. Some people come to church to hear inspirational messages that make them feel kind of warm and fuzzy in their relationship with God. I'm not against that. I think we should cozy up to the Lord. Call him Abba, you know? It's okay. Others hope to hear practical messages on getting out of debt or messages about building a healthy marriage. But guys, in reality, unless people get past the first hurdle, understanding who Jesus Christ is and then receiving him and submitting to him as their Lord and Savior, everything else is meaningless. Worthless, really. You don't need me to teach you about financial responsibility. You don't need me to give you a course in, in uh, finances. You don't need me to give you a marriage seminar every week. There's people, that is their whole ministry, they can do it much better than I can do it. I'm here to tell you, though, that's not your biggest problem. In fact, let me just put it this way. Many Christians think they have a money problem. And so they come to church looking for practical principles on how to get out of debt, not realizing that, listen to me now, they don't have a money problem. They have a lordship problem. Same is true with Christian husbands and wives who come to church looking to learn principles on how to resolve conflict and in their marriages, build a healthy marriage, and so on. Yet, they don't realize they don't have a marriage problem. They have a lordship problem. You, we could f apply this to every issue and problem in the Christian life. You can fill in the blank. You don't have a drinking problem, or a drug problem, or a pornography problem. You have a lordship problem. And I have a lordship problem when I get off into things that God's word says I'm not to get off into. It happens to all of us. We, we don't really have any problems outside of this one as Christians. If we disobey what God's word has said, we don't have a problem in this area or that area. We have a lordship problem. And when I say that many Christians have a lordship problem in their relationship with Jesus Christ, understand what I mean. And that is that many Christians call Jesus Lord but use the word Lord as a name and not a title. Guys, the word Lord is not a name. His name is not Lord Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus. The Christ is his title. And Lord, who is who he is to us? He is our Lord. It's a title. It's used of the person who has control of our life. The one you live to serve and obey. Turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke 
And let's pick it up in verse 46. Where Jesus said to his disciples one day, he had a lot of disciples, a lot of people like to follow him. He turned to a group of these one day and said in verse 46, Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It is like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against the house, it stands firm because it is well built. It's founded on the rock. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey my words is like a person who builds a house without a foundation. In other words, builds it on the dirt. When the floods sweep down against that house, it will, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. Guys, the solution to every problem we face as Christians boils down to how we relate to our Lord Jesus Christ. If he's really our Lord, in other words, our master, the master over all of our lives, every area, we will, we will obey everything he has said. As somebody has said uh, years ago, I've never forgotten it. Either Jesus Christ is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. But even that, even that starts with understanding who he is. And guys, not just theologically or theoretically, for too many Christians, their knowledge of Jesus and the Bible is all theological and even theoretical. We're talking now actual and practical. This is, where I, this is not just a little mini course that you could get at some Bible college. Uh, Jesus declares his divinity. There are many practical applications that we want to draw from it and take into our lives. That's the whole point, right? The whole goal of doctrine is duty. So once again, our Christian faith is built upon the person and work of Christ. If the foundation is faulty, then whatever. You try to build on it, marriage, finance, whatever, will eventually crumble and fall. So please, please listen carefully to the words of Jesus Christ himself in this series over the next few weeks. So first of all, our first main point under our, uh, our title Jesus declares his divinity, is Jesus declares equality with God in his person. Verse 7, let's back up to verse 16. So verse 16, for this reason that Jesus healed a guy on the Sabbath and told him to take up his bed and get out of there, for this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Therefore the Jews, that would be the Jewish leadership, sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now first of all, you read that, you go, what's the big deal? Okay, every one of us as Christians refers to God as our father. In fact, Jesus even taught us to pray our father, right, who is in heaven. And that's true. That's true. But you have to understand that the Christian mindset in calling God our Father today is different than was the Jewish mindset in Jesus' day. You see, in Jewish culture, this is important. You aren't going to get this if you don't get the past if you don't understand this. In Jewish culture, uh, back then, probably still today, um, the mindset was a son was always equal with his father. Listen, in personhood. 
Not in authority. The father was always greater than his kids in authority. But the father was seen as uh, the children, and I'm thinking of the sons now, were seen as absolutely equal with their father in personhood. Personhood. You see, the Jews viewed themselves collectively as the sons of God, listen, by creation, by creation, that he was their father only in the sense that he gave life to them by creating them. So it was a relationship based on creation, not on relation. Jesus Christ was the only begotten son of God. Different ballgame, okay? Jesus claimed to be God's son by nature and personhood. That's what they're picking up on. That's what they're reacting to. Sure, if he would have said, hey, we're all the creation of God. He's our father. He created all of us. They would have had no problem with that. It was that he was claiming a relationship with God the Father that in their minds seemed utterly blasphemous because they knew what he was claiming. Equality with God meant he was claiming divinity as God. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, The hostile Jewish authorities clearly understood that Jesus' use of the title Son of God was a claim to deity. Otherwise, they would not have accused him of blasphemy, chapter 10, verse 36. In fact, it was Jesus' claim to be the Son of God that led the Jews to demand his death. The author quotes John 19, 7. The Jews answered Pilate, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. The author continues, Even while he was on the cross, some mocked him, sneering, He trusts in God? Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Matthew 27, verse 43. The author goes on, All of the above lines of evidence converge on one inescapable point. Jesus Christ claimed absolute equality with God. Thus, he could say, I and the Father are one. He who sees me, he who sees me sees the one who sent me, and he who has seen me has seen the Father. Those are all out of John's gospel. We'll get to each one of them in time. Those who would deny that Jesus claimed to be God must deny the historical accuracy and truthfulness of the gospel records and thereby establish themselves as superior sources of truth, end quote. And you know many do, can I tell you, but the pride of men. But uh, let me focus on verse 17 for just a minute so that we understand what Jesus is saying. Again, verse 16, for, the reason the, uh, for this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. So Jesus essentially told these religious leaders, why do I work on the Sabbath? Simple, because my father works on the Sabbath. Now, it is true that on the very first Sabbath, the one that followed the six days of the original creation, God did rest. Turn to Genesis 2 quickly. And of course, you're all familiar with this. We read in Genesis 1, the, five, the six days of creation. Chapter 2 begins in verse 1. 
Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. When it says that God rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done, guys, it isn't implying that God rested because he was tired or weary. We read in Isaiah 40, verse 28, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. I just read an article just a couple days ago by a young man who said he was an atheist because he read Genesis, or he read in Genesis how God created everything in six days and then rested. And he reasoned that any so-called God who worked six days and then had to take a nap, his words, rest, because he was tired, couldn't be much of a God. Certainly not a God worthy of believing in, serving, or worshiping. It's interesting how he seems to have overlooked completely the part where God created the entire universe in six days by his word, word of his power. Um, the ignorance of some people is breathtaking, and it's a willful ignorance. It's a, they don't want it. They're trying to dismiss the Bible, write it off as foolishness, stupidity. Why? Romans 1.18, because they want to suppress the knowledge of God because they want to live unrighteous lives. That, that's the bottom line, okay? Um, but the, the ignorance of, of some people is breathtaking. Guys, listen, God didn't rest because he was fatigued. He rested because he was finished. He was finished. God doesn't need, one author said, God doesn't need to rest in the sense of rejuvenating himself or replenishing his energy because when God works, there is no loss or dissipation of energy and therefore he can't be fatigued. And then the author quotes Psalm 121, verse 4, Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Hebrew word translated rested in Genesis 2, verse 2 is Shabbat. Simply means that God ceased from his work, as we just said. I mean, he had completed all the work of creation that he desired to do. So there was nothing more for him to create. Therefore, he rested from creating is the idea. But really, guys, God never takes a day off. He doesn't take a Sabbath. And aren't you glad about that? If he did, the entire universe would cease to exist. I've got to have you turn to Colossians 1 for a moment, okay? And let me just digress for a minute, something I never do. No. <laughs> something I never do. Uh, Colossians 1. I just want to touch base, on, again, focus on this for a minute. God never takes a day off. If he did, the universe would cease to exist. Here's what I mean. Colossians 1, verse 16. For through him, the Lord Jesus Christ, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. These are angels and uh, demons and uh, uh, hierarchy and so on. Everything was created through him and for him. Listen. He existed before anything else, 
See, Jesus Christ is not a created being. He is the creator, all right? Um, he existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. When Paul said that Jesus created all things, that would, of course, include atoms. Atoms, which make up all created things in the physical universe. We know that atoms are made up of a nucleus that contains protons, positively charged particles, and neutrons, neutrally charged particles, revolving around the atom as one or more electrons, which are negatively charged particles. Now, if you've ever heard of something called Coulomb's Law of Electricity, it says that like charges repel and, uh, and uh, opposite charges attract. Now, you can prove... You probably did this when you were a kid. You proved Coulomb's law of electricity. If you had a couple of horseshoe magnets and you, and you lined them up so that the positive ends were facing each other and the negative ends, try to push them together, what did it want to do? You felt like it was pushing it away, right? Because like charges repel. You flip it over where you got positive to negative, negative to positive, and they pull together, okay? So like charges repel. Here's the mystery, though of the atom. In the nucleus, as we just said, among the neutrons, there are the protons. Again, protons are all positively charged particles, like charges, stuffed into the nucleus of the atom. And Coulomb's law says that they should repel each other. Those atoms should not stay together. Now, we do know that, uh, well, the question is, what holds them together? I mean, the nucleus of the atom is, is full of these protons. They're all uh, positively charged particles. So why don't they push away from each other? As Coulomb's law suggests they would, have, would do. I mean, what holds these protons together inside the nucleus of an atom? Scientists don't know. Scientists don't know. Some have postulated theories, uh, one of which is called atomic glue, whatever that is, um, as to what holds the atom together. They really don't know. But as believers, we know. I mean, the Bible says it was Jesus who created all things and holds them together. In fact, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says he holds it all together by the word of his power. The same word of, of his power that brought the universe into existence holds it together. Now, the Bible says that someday the Lord Jesus Christ, who is holding everything together, all the atoms in the universe, holding them together, is someday going to let go going to let go. And um, Peter tells us what's going to happen. I don't want to have you turn to it. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. And both the earth and, its, and the works that are in it will be burned up. When Peter says the elements will melt, underline that word, he uses the Greek word luo. And the Greek word luo uh, is translated in other parts of the New Testament to be loosed, to be loosed. We know an atomic explosion takes place when slow-moving neutrons are used to bombard the nucleus of an atom. When that happens, the positively charged protons respond according to their nature and begin to repel each other. The result is the atom splits and an atomic explosion occurs. They tell me that, and I'm, they didn't tell me personally, I, I've read articles, okay, where 
the amount of nuclear material that was used in the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima was about the size of a dime. Think about that. The nuclear material, atomic material that was used in the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima was only about the size of a dime. And look at the devastation that was caused. The physical universe is estimated to be anywhere from 12 to 18 billion years, light years across. They don't know for sure. Let's just use the smaller number, 12 billion light years, the distance a light can travel in a year. It's a long way, about 6 trillion miles. So you times 6 trillion miles by 12 billion, you get roughly the diameter of the universe. To think that someday Jesus who is holding all the atoms in the universe together, will let go. And there's going to be a nuclear bomb detonated that is 12 billion light years in diameter is absolutely incredible to think about. There will suddenly be a great noise, as Peter describes, and the physical universe will instantly be vaporized as everything will dissolve in zillion degree fervent heat and cease to exist. Folks, the Big Bang didn't happen at the beginning. It happens at the end. You say, well, then what happens? Again, you have to turn to these. I'll just read them to you. Isaiah 65, verse 17. God said, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. And then 2 Peter 3 we read verse 10, picking up in verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, the physical universe as we know it, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. So that's coming. But getting back to our text this morning, God rested on the first Sabbath because the work of creation was finished. However, not long after God finished the original creation, physical universe, man fell. Remember in the garden, uh, Genesis 3? Man fell, and listen to me now, God immediately began working on the new creation, which is the work of redemption. You remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a what? New creation. That's redemption. Redemption. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The work of the new creation or redemption of man began, well, since God is outside of time, I could even say it began before time began. Uh, Revelation 13, 8, Jesus Christ was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. From before God ever spoke the universe into existence, he knew we were going to blow it. Blow it, and he already had the plan of redemption in place. But let's just talk about time, all right? As soon as man, and, uh, man Adam and Eve, uh, fell in the Garden of Eden, God began the second work of creation, okay, the new creation. And God took and killed animals and used the animal skins to cover the shame of their sin. Remember, they, 
they were naked initially, didn't know they were naked. They were innocent. Sin had not entered into their consciences. Uh, after they sinned, they realized they were naked. They were, they were ashamed, and they took fig leaves, sold, sold them together to cover the shame of their nakedness. And when God saw them, he says, that's not going to do. So God killed a couple of innocent animals there in the garden, took their skins and covered Adam and Eve, not because animal skins don't, uh, fig leaves don't cover as well as animal skins. God was laying down a principle that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Your sin cannot be covered. The Old Testament, it was covered through the animal sacrifices, and the New was taken away by the sacrifice of Christ. And guys, that, I believe, is what Jesus, Jesus is essentially referring to when he said in verse 17, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. He was talking about the work of saving souls, the work of redemption, a work that God never rests from doing, listen, until it is finished. I have to have you turn to Revelation 21. It's interesting, guys. The original creation took six literal days to complete, and God rested on the seventh literal day, right? 24-hour period. It's taken God six thousand years 6,000 years for the work of redemption uh, in the millennial kingdom a thousand years um, we kind of rest but sin is not fully dealt with at during the millennial kingdom so it's not going to be until after the millennial kingdom that the work of redemption will be finished let's pick it up in revelation 21 verse 1 john said now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. All the effects of sin are over with, because sin is gone. It's gone. No more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. The former things have passed away. Verse 5. Then he who sat in the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, John, write it down, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, What? It is done. It is finished. The work of the second creation was now finished, and God rested. And he will rest for all eternity, because sin will be no more. No longer a need for man to be redeemed. Those who have wanted to be redeemed have made that decision and are now in their glorified bodies around the throne of God, rejoicing and praising Him and doing whatever He's going to give us to do. We're going to have missions to go on. Revelation tells us that. You say, what well, missions? Doing what? Not evangelistic missions, but missions somehow. And 
the work of the universe, uh, will be involved. God made us to be productive. You think you're going to sit in a cloud for, uh, you, know, you know, the rest of you know, time? I mean, not rest of time, but for all eternity, playing a harp? That doesn't excite me very much. Um, now listen, please understand as we kind of bring this a little close. When Jesus healed on the Sabbath, or did any miracle for that regard, um, it was designed to point the Jewish people, and yes, Gentiles got the message too, designed to point the Jewish people to the fact that he was God incarnate, equal with the Father and Savior of the world. He didn't do miracles to entertain. Herod wanted him to do a miracle to entertain him. Jesus kept quiet, didn't answer Herod a word. Remember uh, the day Christ was crucified? Everything he did was designed to point people. That's why they're called signs. A sign points you to something. These miracles were signs that pointed people to the reality that not only was Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, but he was the Son of the living God and Savior of the world. In John 14, 11, we read Jesus talking to his men in the upper room before the cross. Believe me that I am in the Father. He's talking about a oneness with the Father, that he is God along with the Father and the Spirit. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works, the miracles and healings that I do. They testify of who I am. This goes way back to Isaiah, when God prophesied about the coming Messiah and how the people of Israel would know he was the true Messiah, because many false messiahs came down the pike. Here's how you're going to know the true Messiah when he comes, Isaiah 35 uh, 5 and 6, when Messiah comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer. He just healed a guy uh, in verses 1 to 15, we've been crippled for 38 years. The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb, the mute, will sing. Guys, when Jesus worked on the Sabbath healing people, it was the work of redemption, the work of redemption by showing them that Messiah, the Son of God, was in fact with them, using his miraculous works to prove his divinity and ultimately to save them if they would receive him by faith. Again, guys, the first point in our outline of this series, Jesus declares his divinity, is Jesus declares his equality with God in his person. And of course, the idea being that no one can be equal with God who is not God. That's the idea. Verse 18, let me draw your attention to this quickly. It says, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. The phrase making himself equal with God in the Greek is a per present uh, perfect tense verb, and it should be translated this way, Jesus was continually making himself equal with God. In other words, this was no isolated incident. It was the hallmark of his ministry to go around proclaiming his divinity. Regardless of what the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Wayne International Cult, or any other group tells you, because a lot of them say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. It wasn't God, never claimed to be God. That's pure heresy. Pure heresy. And if anyone ever tells you that, you can take them right here in John 5 and show them what Jesus actually said about himself on the subject. In fact, those who heard Jesus knew he was claiming deity. That's why they wanted to kill him. 
if they had misunderstood, listen, if they had misunderstood what Jesus was claiming about himself and therefore picked up stones to kill him for blasphemy, chapter 10, verse 32, he would have immediately realized they were trying to stone him because he had blasphemed and claimed to be God. If he wasn't God, he would have said, hold it, guys, hold it, you misunderstood me. I'm not claiming to be God. But instead, when the Jewish leaders picked up stones to kill him, he said to them in John 10, 32, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself constantly God, is the Greek. Again, if he wasn't claiming to be God, and they picked up stones, and he knew that they had misunderstood something he had said, he would have immediately set the record straight. But instead, he agreed with their understanding of who he was. They had it right. They had it right. They understood perfectly who he was claiming to be, God, the second person of the Trinity in human form. If Jesus Christ wasn't who he claimed to be, he would have been a liar and or a lunatic, the worst blasphemer that ever lived. And again, guys, that's why it's so ridiculous to call him a good teacher. People all the time, well, who is Jesus? Oh, he's a good teacher. Do you believe he's God? No, he's a good teacher. No, not God. It's ridiculous to call him a good teacher if you're not going to accept who he taught he was. Good teachers don't claim to be God. Blasphemers do, lunatics do, and God does, because he is. So take your pick. Take your pick. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, God in human form, your Lord and Savior, then you better listen, you had better listen to what he said and do what he told you to do. And me. First believe. Then receive him as your Lord, Savior, and then what? Obey. Obey. I'll leave you with the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, Luke 6, verse 46. So why do you, why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do the things I tell you? Guys, nothing else will be made right in your life. Not, not your marriage or your finances or anything else in your life until you call Jesus Lord. Not as a name, but as a title of the one who is in control of every area of your life and then start living like he's your Lord. And do everything he's told you to do. If you're not at that point, I want to, but I fail. That's okay. I, I get that. If you have uh, the desire, you pray. God will give you the grace. But a lot of people come to church, call Jesus Lord, but they don't, they don't intend to follow all that he has said. They really don't. And so their finances are in trouble. Their marriage is crumbling. Uh, you know, they're in bondage to alcohol or drugs. or something. And they're, they're blaming God. Lord, why am I going through all this? Didn't you promise me all these? And God is saying, until you call my son Lord and mean it as 
a title for the one who has complete control of your life, your life is not going to be anything I want it to be. It's up to you. And, and he would say this to all of us. So, Jesus Christ is equal with God because he is God. First point in our outline. And we'll pick it up next week at our second point. And pray that God will just keep leading us through these statements by our Lord as to who he is. That we might apply them into our lives and so on. Father, we thank you for your word. Of course, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word on who you are. And Lord, we know that theologically. But Father, Lord, give us grace to live it practically. Many will say in the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, haven't we gone to church? Haven't we worked in the local soup kitchen? Haven't we done all kinds of neat things in your name? And you will tell them, depart from me. I never knew you. Because you lived lives of lawlessness, you didn't obey what I said. Give us grace, Lord, to always do the things you have told us, because you are, in fact, our Lord. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.